This morning we have two readings, the first of which will be in Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And our second reading is going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 to 8, verse 2. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn forever and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Well, please keep that passage open in front of you, um, and you can see an outline of where we're going, if you'd like to know, on the back of um, the sheet uh, with the order of service. Um, Let me pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, righteous, pure, and perfect in your very nature, and we are not. 
And so as we turn to your word now, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our high priest. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Let me just say up front, I am um, uh, battling with a cold, so if I sound squeaky or croaky at any point, um, try to ignore that. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't distract us, because we have a passage which, in lots of ways, is is the climax of this um, big argument that's been building through Hebrews about Jesus as our priest. This is a big moment, this passage. Um, and that verse, eight, chapter 8, verse 1, if you're still on page 1005 of the Church Bibles, chapter 8, verse 1, in lots of ways, is the main point of, well, at least half the book of Hebrews, if not the whole thing. Um, uh, 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have such a high priest, if we're Christians here this morning. That's the thing to get excited about. Um, but I wonder if you are excited about the idea of having any kind of priest. I wonder if we feel like we need a priest. So I'm going to give us a bit of a run-up to our topic this morning. We will go through the passage in detail, as usual. Um, but I want to start somewhere else and, and kind of build up to it. <clears throat> so I don't know if you saw the headlines this week about the census results in England and Wales We don't have the Scottish ones yet. That's another story. Um, But the big headline grabber was that people ticking the Christian box on the question about religious belief has fallen below half for the first time in England and Wales. In some ways, that's a significant milestone, although not a hugely surprising one, I don't think, given the huge reduction in church attendance nationally. And I imagine Scotland's results will be even more in that direction. You see, in lots of ways, we are becoming an increasingly post-Christian culture. There's been this loss of confidence in the Bible's authority and clarity, both in the kind of main denominations and particularly in the the roots for training ministers, uh, which means the church has kind of lost its message a bit. No authentic good news, distinctive good news to share from the Bible. Uh, So lots of churches are just echoing what what the culture says which is a recipe for irrelevance over time and decline. If you take the gospel out of the church, the church gets taken out. It's happened countless times in other cultures, and it's happening in ours. So we're living in this kind of post-Christian culture, which is a culture that's a generation or two down the line of turning away from Jesus and from the Bible. Now, we could talk about the things that come with a post-Christian culture all morning, Um, One of the most striking, we're not going to, but I'll give you a minute or two. One of the most striking things about post-Christian culture is that the vestiges of Christian values and ethics and worldview remain in place for a while. So in the kind of collective moral consciousness, even though the foundations and reasons have now gone, some things still remain. So in secular Scotland, you see that all over the place. The, the shape of our political, judicial, medical systems, much of it arises from a Christian worldview. Things like valuing the dignity of each human person made in God's image. Or valuing truthful speech, because God is a truth speaker. Or valuing compassion and other person-centered, gracious love, because that's what Jesus did, modeled himself and called us to. 
So we're in this moment at the moment where many people would deny the God of truth but think truth still matters. Deny the Christ of compassion but think compassion is what we should all have. Deny the creator of humanity but still claim humanity has value, every individual. Or at least most individuals. Because of course you can't stick with those values for an extended period having cut out the foundations without them getting distorted or the motivation to live that way gradually ebbing away. And we could talk about that all morning, but we're not going to because Hebrews 7 is our topic. But there's one thing about a post-Christian culture which is less obvious but directly relevant to Hebrews 7 and 8. It's a belief that it's another kind of echo of Christianity, another kind of vestige of the Christian worldview. But again, it's been distorted. Um, the belief is this. If God is there at all, he must be approachable. If there is a God out there, he must be easily approachable. That is to say, if I could be bothered to give him some time, perhaps when I'm in trouble or if I've got nothing better to do, then he would be glad to meet me. He would happily listen to me. He'd let me into his heaven on the final day. To quote the widespread ad campaign, if I just hashtag try praying, I'm sure God would be glad to hear me. If God is there, I'm sure he's approachable. I don't think there's any doubt that view is around far and wide in the Western world and up and down Morningside Road today. Why am I saying I think that's a belief that's a feature of post-Christian culture? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, if you look around other cultures around the world, often there is a fear of God. Often there's trepidation about a divine being or spiritual beings. It might be a belief in spirits or demons, one God, many gods, many faces of the same God. But there's widespread agreement that if there is a being out there who made the world, well, maybe we should approach with caution. Makes kind of sense, doesn't it? If there's someone greater than us, who has power over our lives, who has the capacity to judge our behavior, who will decide our future after death, well, it would be right to have a healthy sense of fear and trepidation. Because God is bigger than me, stronger than me. But more than that, because God, or whatever divine being they believe in, is holier and purer than we are. Most of us have an awareness. We don't live up to even our own standards. So if there is this higher holy being to hold us accountable, well, we might be in trouble. It might not be easy to approach. And so across the globe, massive quantities of energy, time, and money goes into systems of priests, holy people, to act as the go-between. Temples, holy places, a safe space where you can meet God. Offerings, holy gifts to kind of get things right with God. That's the norm for global cultures. That sense of awe, wonder, fear, trepidation when faced with the divine. And when you think about it, there's logic to it. But here in the West, it's the complete opposite. Here we have this kind of spiritual self-confidence. It's such a widespread view. If there's a God, he must be approachable. We wouldn't need a priest or offerings or special clothes or a special place to meet with him. Just hashtag try praying. God will be grateful for us to waltz into his presence. 
Why do we think like that? I think it's a product of post-Christian culture. You see, one of the amazing truths of the real good news about Jesus, which we're going to see in Hebrews 7 again this morning, is that he genuinely does open the door to God. Open the door to God's throne room. Make the holy living God approachable. We just sang it, didn't we? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. His name is, well, Jesus, but in the song, his name is love. It's actually one of the key blessings of the whole letter of Hebrews. One of the major applications it keeps making is that we can draw near to God with confidence because of Jesus, because he has opened the way. He's our great high priest, our great go-between, between a sinful people and a holy God. Chapter 8, verse 1 again. The point we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent the Lord set up. That's this main point. We have such a high priest, we really can approach God. But we're living in a culture who's decided to get rid of the high priest, to turn away from Jesus, but try and keep the blessings he secures especially the approachability of God. Does that make sense? Like loads of people today would, would think, well, I don't like organized religion. I'm not really into the Bible. I'm not keen on Jesus per se, or not that version of Jesus, but I am spiritual. I like to connect to God in my own way. Can you hear the spiritual self-confidence? I do think it's a distorted afterglow from the light of the gospel that has shone so brightly in this nation for centuries. That is, we have this collective memory that God is approachable, that God makes a way to approach him with freedom. Except today, people don't fancy the way, which is Jesus, but still think you can approach him. Why am I spending so long about how people think out there? Well, because I think that cultural air rubs off on Christians. We, we breathe it all the time. And I think we can forget how much we really do need a high priest to approach God. I think we can underestimate as Christians what an absolutely massive job Jesus is doing every day of the week. A necessary job Jesus is doing as our high priest in heaven. We can forget that without the provision of Jesus as our high priest, without his death on the cross, there'd literally be no point trying praying. A holy God cannot, by his very nature, live with unholy people. It's one of the big problems that runs all the way through the Bible. How can the God who is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, how can he live safely in relationship with sinners? Well, he can't, unless some forgiveness is provided, unless there's someone in between to intercede for us. That is why the priesthood of Jesus is such a big deal. See, we can't see our priest doing his work for us. If we lived in Israel with their temple and their sacrifices and their high priest from the tribe of Levi, it would have been obvious that you need a priest if you expect to come anywhere near God's presence. But... Our priest is invisible. He's doing his work in heaven. And I think that can sometimes lull us into the false sense of we don't really need him rather than we absolutely need him. 
He's almost a victim of his own success, if that makes sense. He, he has opened the doors so wide to us, we assume it was easy to open them. Assume that we might be able to open them ourselves. But no, 8 verse 1, the point is what we're saying is we have such a high priest. That's why we have confidence to know God. That's why we can pray in Jesus' name with real confidence. Now, I've spent a long time on that because I think it really matters. I think we'll hear the rest of, um, of these amazing things about Jesus, our priest, uh, better and hopefully with more hunger once we realize what a necessary thing a priest is. So let's dive in then um, to the details now. And we've seen the main point, but there are two aspects of Jesus as our priest in this passage. Um, firstly, he's a, a permanent priest. He's, he's the fixed permanent priest, totally secure in his role. And then we'll get to he's the perfect priest, totally suitable for his role. Um, and it, I think we could see this passage in some ways as a kind of job review, uh, like a, a review of how secure is Jesus in his job, in his role as high priest, and then how suitable is he um, for his job. So first off, verses 20 to 25 of chapter 7. Um, do open your Bibles if, if you can. It will help as we go through. Um, from verse 20 onwards, the permanence of Jesus in his role. Now there are two sides to this. There's a kind of top-down permanence and security. So the appointment from above is secure. We'll look at that first. And then, we're, then there's a kind of security that Jesus has in himself in his role that he's not going to retire due to old age, infirmity, or death. So firstly, from top down, Jesus is secure. His position as our high priest is secure because of God's oath. Let me read from verse 20. 7 verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. Now, what oath are we talking about here? Um, let me try and put some pictures up on the screen. Um, whoa, this is an exciting moment. Yes, here we go. Um, let me skip all this. We'll come back to that. Uh, oh, and this. Hang on. There, here we go. Okay, so... Um, uh, what oath has God made? Well, this is Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, all of Hebrews 7 has been unpacking that statement from Psalm 104. Um, two weeks ago, if you were here with Jay, um, we looked at the first half of chapter 7, which tackles the bit that says, after the order of Melchizedek. So how is Jesus a priest a bit like Melchizedek. And we saw things like he's, he's both a king and a priest, which was illegal in Israel, but was there in Genesis. And he's a one-of-a-kind priest. He doesn't hand his priesthood on to someone else. He lasts forever. So we did that at the start of chapter 7. But right now, we're thinking about the first bit of that statement. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That is... Jesus is the permanent priest. That's why in verse 21, that's the bit he quotes here. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. You cannot have greater job security than the boss saying, I've decided, I'm saying it out loud, I'm going to swear an oath, and I will not change my, my mind. From God's side, God the Father, it's never going to change. He has chosen his priest, and the name is Jesus. 
At which point, the, the sheer folly of a culture turning its back on Jesus Christ becomes more apparent. See, when it comes to approaching God, the holy God, the, the creator God, the king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead, the Lord of eternity, the ancient of days, when it comes to approaching him, who do you think gets the casting vote on which of the paths up the mountain might actually lead to him? Which spiritualities would be welcomed by him? Or well, not us, clearly. It's his choice, and he has chosen. The Lord has sworn, in fact, and will not change his mind, you, Jesus, are the priest forever. It's actually, if you read through the Old Testament, it's one of the clearest messages of the whole priestly system, the, the tabernacle, the tent, the sacrifices, the priests. One of the clearest messages was, you cannot just waltz up to God however you like. Any way you choose, whenever you fancy, offering whatever you want. No, those who did were consumed by, by the fire of his holiness. There was only one safe way, the way he had appointed. Now, for Old Testament Israel, for a time, it was these Levitical priests. But we saw at the start of our reading, verse 11, that actually they didn't do enough. They were a temporary and inadequate provision, not a good enough priest to open the way to God. But now God has chosen a priest. He's gone on record. He's sworn an oath, chosen for good, permanently. Jesus Christ will be his priest. That is the way to come. That's why, actually, incidentally, we pray as Christians in Jesus' name. You often hear that at the end of prayers up here. It's not some kind of magic formula. It's not a kind of a, a, a coin that you put in the heavenly slot machine to make sure you get prayers get answered. It's not about the precise wor wording. But it is a way of saying and acknowledging that by ourselves we would have no right for God to listen to our prayers. No reason to expect that he would answer our prayers. But then in and through Jesus, our high priest, the high priest God has chosen, we can have every confidence. That's what verse 22 is talking about. Uh, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Each one of these little sections about Jesus' job spells out an implication for us. And here's the implication here. Because he's fixed in place, well, therefore, he's a guarantee of our relationship with God, our covenant relationship with God. So you may have seen this picture before. Um, uh, the son, who's at God's right hand, is like an anchor for our hope. That's the language of chapter 5. Or here, he's the guarantee of our covenant. We can have real confidence as we come to relate to God any day of the week because Jesus is already fixed in place as a permanent high priest. So that's the first thing. I hope you're still with me. Our permanent priest has been secured by God's oath. If you like, from above, from the boss, total security. But there is another aspect to being secure in a role um, here comes my one and only World Cup illustration um, with apologies I know some of us aren't interested in the World Cup and are probably unimpressed that it's taking up so much TV coverage and things um, and sermon illustration time uh, but here's an illustration so Gareth Southgate who's the England manager if you're not sure um, he could say I have chosen my captain and centre forward 
to be Harry Kane. In fact, I swear, and I will not change my mind, you are our centre-forward and captain forever, Harry. Now, Gareth could say that, but then Harry might get injured or not be available, or he will get old and not be able to play. The point is, true permanence in a role doesn't just come from above the wishes of the boss. It comes from the person. Can they actually do the role? Are they available for selection? We'll have a listen to um, what's said of Jesus. It's the same in a workplace, isn't it? It's not just whether the boss wants you to fill the role. It's whether you're able and around to fill it, which aging and infirmity and death will end for everyone. So just listen from verse 23. The former priests, these the priests of Israel, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. I love verses 24 and 25. Uh, it's an amazing truth, isn't it? That, that whereas the, the former priest, the, the, the Levite priest in Israel, if you had a good priest for a while, there weren't many, but there were a few that were okay, Moses, Aaron, Eli, who were mostly helpful, well, it was great while you had them, but then what about the next generation? Aaron's sons, Eli's sons, complete disaster. So even the best priest, you didn't know how long you'd have them for. But then there's the priest of Psalm 110, the forever priest. Remember verse 21? The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. Must have been quite a puzzle for David when he wrote that. You're a priest forever. How could there be a human being who was permanently in the mediator role, in the priestly role? Then, over a thousand years later, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, witnessed by many. And suddenly it became very clear. Ah, you're the priest and king of Psalm 110. This was the plan, to have Jesus as the human intermediary permanently, always living to make intercession for us. It's actually mind-blowing when you stop and think of it. When this letter to the Hebrews was first read out, to I guess a, a, really, a smaller house church than, than this, while it was being read, Jesus was alive in heaven praying for that church. And here we are, 2,000 years later in Morningside, Jesus is alive at God's right hand, interceding for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. Extraordinary. And actually, that is what we need. Are you aware of how much you need the ongoing help of Jesus as our priest? I know I am at the moment. It's just so hard, isn't it? Sometimes to keep going with the Christian walk, to keep um, striving to God's promised rest, uh, to, to, to approach God when we've stuffed up or sinned, uh, the battle to keep fighting temptation and sin. We need a priest, an ongoing priest. And the point, 8 verse 1 here, is we have one. We have him. Such a high priest, permanently in place, eternally there, guaranteed not just by God's oath, but by his own immortality. He's never going to retire of old age or weakness, never going to be able to not do the job Verse 25, that wonderful language, 
Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It's a striking phrase, that, isn't it? He's able to save us to the uttermost, or save us completely. So we might well think, oh, hang on, I thought if I'm a Christian, I was saved. Um, But it's worth saying that there are three tenses of salvation in the New Testament. Uh, So a Christian can say, I have been saved, past tense. At the cross, everything was paid for. I was credited with Jesus' moral purity, and he took my moral debt and filth on his shoulders. It was punished on him. So I can say as a Christian, we can say, we've been saved. That's one tense. It's also true to say a future tense of salvation. One day Jesus will come and take us home when he judges the world. He'll save us from the struggles and sufferings and hostility in this world uh, and God's coming judgment. But actually, I think the third tense is the one we often don't think much about, and it's the one that Hebrews has been helping us with, which is we are in the process of being saved. Let me put another picture up for that. Um, do you remember where Hebrews said we were? It, in chapters 3 and 4, there was that picture of the Israelites on the journey from Egypt to God's promised rest. And the point for Christians is we are there. We are here in the journey, on the journey, not yet all the way home to God's new creation We are still on the journey, which means we are being saved in the process of being taken taken home. And so far, we've had kind of lots of quite challenging warnings for the journey. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Uh, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so we don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. We have that warning, don't be sluggish in how we listen. Be eager to keep growing and so keep going. There have been kind of lots of wake-up calls for us on the journey. Some of us, therefore, from this term in Hebrews, may be feeling daunted. What if I'm not strong enough to keep going, to keep growing? What if I'm not strong enough to keep striving for God's promised rest? Well, wonderfully, verse 25, our high priest is able to save all the way. That's the word, to the uttermost, all the way. That is to say, when we struggle to pray, Jesus is praying for us. He's always appealing on the basis of his own death for our forgiveness. Even when we've stuffed up again, he is there, permanently at God's right hand, every day until he takes us home. How do we respond to that? What's the application of this passage? Well, um, like so much in Hebrews, consider Jesus. It's great, that line in, in the song, isn't it, that Robin drew attention to. Upwards I look. Upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. I think we do actually have to consciously make an effort to look up. We need the command, consider Jesus. Because he's not visibly doing his work down here, is he? I mean, if we were in Israel, we would have seen um, daily sacrifices going on. We would have seen the animals um, uh, uh, being sacrificed and the priests doing their work. But our priest is in the true holy place, in God's throne room in heaven. And so we do actually have to consciously lift our eyes up to him, think on him, consider how safe and secure our relationship with God is through him at God's right hand. I said in our, at the start, I said in our post-Christian culture, 
it's easy to, to underestimate that we need a priest. Um, I think there is one other aspect uh, in our kind of church culture, which is we're post-Reformation. In a church like this, um, if we'd done a survey at the start of the, um, start of the term, before we got into Hebrews, and we did a survey and we say, do you need a priest? I'm guessing quite a few of us would say, oh, no, absolutely not. No, we don't, we don't, we don't call our ministers priests very deliberately. We're shepherds, we're elders, we're ministers, we're pastors, but we're not priests. Because we want to be clear that we, we are not the intermediary between God and people. That was what was causing such dismay to the reformers um, at the time of Reformation, that, that um, the Roman Catholic Church had started to become a kind of intermediary, that you go through a saint to get to God, or through Mary, or through a ritual like Mass. But in reaction to that issue of the church kind of inserting itself uh, as, a, as the go-between, in reaction to that, I think lots of us emotionally now think, well, I just don't need a priest. Like if, I, if, I, if we did the word association I said priest, we'd all be like, oh, no. Whereas actually, what we should be thinking is priest. Yes, yes, I need a priest, and I have one. Do you see the point? The point of the Reformation was we already have a priest who does everything necessary We have such a high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. Him alone can open the doors to heaven. And so they are open if you trust in him. So I think there are ways in which kind of we need to consider Jesus and consider how necessary he is for us. Um, But for our last few minutes, let's keep moving and turn to the second point. This will be much briefer. Don't worry. Um, We've seen our permanent priest. He's totally secure in his role. And then finally, our perfect priest. He is totally suitable for, our, for, for his role. Um, I can't think of a more exciting word than suitable. And it's clear in our translation, um, uh, they couldn't think of a more exciting word than fitting, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have. But what that's getting at is exactly what we need. It should sound a bit more exciting than fitting or suitable. So verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The, world, the words pile up there, don't they, to show how pure Jesus is. He never spoke a lie. He never gave in to temptation. He never put himself before others. He never hardened his heart to God's voice. All of which means he alone deserves to be in God's presence is welcomed into God's presence on his own merits. Unlike every other priest in the Bible who had to cover themselves with sacrifices, with incense, cover their own failings, even just to pop into the holy place, temporarily to represent us. No, Jesus is different. Verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Just amazing truths again. Jesus did not have to clean himself up, not distracted by sacrifices to to purify himself. No, instead, he offered his own pure life once for all on the cross. A sacrifice so effective, it covers all of our failings, past, present, future. Even ones we'd be too ashamed to admit to anyone else. Jesus is a perfect priest. Now, we'll see more of 
how amazing that sacrifice is in the coming chapters when we get back to Hebrews in the new year. But I hope we're starting to feel more excited about 8 verse 1. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that God set up, not man. Christians, I wonder if we realize how good we have it when it comes to approaching God. How good we have it having a high priest. Um, in lots of ways, I'll go back to the um, diagram of the book so far. There we go. In lots of ways, this is the, the, uh, uh, the book so far. We've said that Jesus is a great speaker, greater than angels, greater than prophets. We've said that Jesus came down as a great brother to stand in our shoes. But so much of the book is trying to show us what an amazing priest Jesus is. This great king priest, better than all the other priests and, and sacrifices of the old covenant. And, and 8 verse 1 is like the climax. We have such a great priest, this king priest in Jesus. He's been appointed by God by oath. He's permanent. And he can do the business, secure a better covenant for us. Now just as we close, I want you to notice the way Chapter 8, verse 1, phrases his main point. See, he doesn't say, now the point in what we're saying is this, Jesus is a great priest. And he doesn't say, the point in what we're saying is this, there is a great high priest. No, his words are, the point we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. We have him praying for us, paid the price for us, intercedes for us, holds the doors of heaven open for us. We can try praying in his name at any point with real confidence. We're going to leave Hebrews as we head into our Advent and Christmas series over the coming weeks. But I really hope we don't leave Hebrews in our hearts. Not least, because Christmas can actually be quite a hard time, Christianly. Uh, often our routines are different. There's other temptations, the office parties, um, uh, gluttony or drink over, over the Christmas period. Um, there's the battle to speak of Jesus and the, 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 the battle with cowardice that comes with that. There's lots of challenges over Christmas. What do we need to remember? Well, we have a high priest. Such a high priest. If we've stuffed up, we have a high priest. If we're struggling and battling temptation, we have this high priest. And in terms of how we should react to that, um, well, one more thing on the picture. This big central section, it's chapters 5 to 10, all about Jesus as priest. We're halfway through at the moment. Um, the big central section it's bracketed with the application. So these little purple boxes that may be too small to, to see. Um, chapter 4, verse 14, we'll turn there in a moment. And chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. We don't have time for that bit today. But just turn to chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is the kind of big application of all the, what might feel like complex theology we've been looking at, all this rich food about Jesus the high priest. This is the application, and then it's repeated in chapter 10, verse 19. Just listen out. I'll read this brief comment and then pray. 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest 
who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is to say, let's not be embarrassed to be Christians. Let's hold on to Jesus publicly as well as privately. Let's hold fast our confession. And of course, if you know the one way to approach God, of course you'd hold on to him and not go elsewhere. That's one application. And let's read on. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's my prayer that Hebrews would get us doing that more and more as we consider Jesus. Let me pray now. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that we have such a high priest. Even now, as I pray this prayer, interceding for us. We thank you that he's perfect, all we need. His once for all sacrifice on the cross paid the price and his ongoing interceding for us makes us able to approach you. We thank you that he's permanent that that situation will never change, that he'll always be there for us all the way to the end. And Father, we do pray you'd help us to appreciate what we have in him. Please help us to be willing to hold fast our confession. And we pray that where we struggle or mess up, that we would come to the throne of grace in his name and find grace and mercy in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.